All right, we're going to continue our time in the book of Philippians this morning, and I'm going to read a short passage, a few verses, Philippians in chapter 1 and verses 9 to 11. I invite you to, in your Bible, look it up or read along on the, on the overhead, Philippians 1, verses 9 to 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding and more importantly in applying this to our lives. Dear Lord, I do pray for understanding, and that matters. We need to understand uh, what your word says and what it means. I believe that you are a God who has spoken and has spoken clearly and plainly. Uh, you desire to make yourself known and understood. And so I pray that we would hear and understand. I pray that we wouldn't just understand, that we wouldn't just walk away from our time together with increased knowledge, but I pray for the gift of application, that you would enable us not just to understand these words, but to embody and to live out these words. I pray that you would use this time of meditating on your word to shape us into the men and women and young people that you've created, called, and redeemed us to be. In Christ's name, amen. All right, when you hear a mother say, I have three beautiful children, you tend to assume that she has only three children and that she thinks they're all beautiful. You don't think that, well, she has three beautiful children and probably two that are not so attractive. You don't think that because good moms think all their kids are beautiful, right? That's, they just do, right? And we know, right, we all know that all kids are beautiful. They are. Kids are beautiful. But to parents, your own kids are just a little beautifuler than all the rest of the kids, right? There's something about seeing your kids with the loving eyes of a parent. They're just something about your own kids that are beautiful. Well, that is how Paul views the church at Philippi, right? Paul views the Philippian church with the loving eyes of a parent, by God's grace, Paul planted that church. We talked about that two weeks ago. When he came to Philippi, there were no Christians there. When he left, there were some Christians there. Not a lot, but some. And over time, over the years, over the decades, that small group of Christians that he left behind in Philippi, they grew, and they became the church at Philippi, and Paul loves that church. Paul loves all the churches, but Paul loves that church in a special way because he looks at that church with the eyes of a parent. Paul has a special connection to the church at Philippi, and that comes through in this letter that he's written. Parents, do you remember the very first step that your very first child took? I bet you do, if you were there for it. I bet you do. Marco and I, I'm sure she remembers it. We were, happened to be together 
at that moment for the first step of our first child. Our child was uh, 13 months old when she took her first step. We were there. We were about to head out to a meeting at church. The babysitter was there. We had just given the note and all the information that she needed to know. And then we're standing at the door, about to walk out, and little Lois kind of pulls herself up on the coffee table, which she had done lots, and then she held by one hand, and she looked at us, and we're at the door, and she lets go. She's just standing there, you know, like, (laughs) totally shaky and wobbly, don't know what's going to happen next. Usually the next thing is that she would just fall on her backside. But this time, she leaned into it, and she took one, two, (laughs) three steps, and then went down. That was, that was the, our big moment, right? Like, we just, we, it, it was like no kid had ever done that before, right? We were just <laughs> unbelievable. Did you see what you just did? Unbelievable. And uh, you, can, you can bet that every single person at the meeting we were at that night, they all heard the story about our beautiful and amazing daughter and how she just took these incredible three steps. And... Uh, As parents, we love our kids with that kind of special love. We think that they are beautiful and amazing exactly as they are. And yet, we don't want them to stay exactly as they are. Right? We want them, we love them as they are, but we want them to keep growing and progressing. Right? Developing into the people that God has created them to be. We want to see them fill their God-given potential. Right? Sometimes when I'm talking to my youngest daughter, I, I jokingly tell her that I just want her to stop, stay put, stop growing. She's 10 years old. That's good enough. No more growing. And we, we joke about that, but I don't really want that. I don't really want her to stop growing. I want her to blossom and to grow into her full potential. Three wobbly steps were great for a 13-month-old. We celebrated those three steps. But I didn't want her to stay there. I I didn't want that to be her peak physical development. I wanted her to keep progressing. I wanted her to learn how to walk, and then how to run, and then how to jump. I was so blessed this past week. I had... uh, I had a dinner with my three daughters. Me and, me and my three daughters seated around the table. It was so special for me to be seated there with those three young women. I think that behind my back, there was a lot of eye rolling going on at that meal. I think it's happening right now again. But uh, I, told them, I told them how very proud I am of all three of them. And uh, I prayed for them. We sat at the table and I prayed for them. And my prayer for my daughters was a prayer expressing gratitude to God for who they are right now and a prayer asking for growth, that they don't stay where they are right now, but that they keep growing. A prayer of gratitude and growth. Paul, the earthly father of the Philippian church, is praying in a very similar way at the beginning of the book of Philippians. He prays a prayer of gratitude. Gratitude for who they are right now. We covered that in verse 3, remember? He says, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you. Right? He's so grateful. Right now, who they are right now. Every time I think of you, I thank God for you. Right? That's gratitude. 
And then, though, he prays for their growth. I love who you are. I love where you are. But I don't want you to stay where you are. I want you to grow. And those are the verses that we read this morning. Paul was there in Philippi. He saw them take their first three wobbly steps of faith, right? And he rejoiced with them. That's awesome. You're up. You're on your feet. You're moving forward. Praise God. But let's not stay here. Let's keep growing. Let's keep progressing. Let's keep learning. Keep developing. Keep bearing more and more beautiful fruit so that you might realize your full potential as blood-bought, spirit-empowered children of God. Paul says, I'm thrilled with where you are right now. You're beautiful to me right now. It brings me joy just to think about you right now, but I don't want you to plateau. I pray that you'll keep growing. And of course, we all need that. Every person in this room needs that. Not one person in here has arrived. Not one person in here should be done growing. We need to experience ongoing growth, and these verses this morning can help us with that. So last week I encouraged the church, all of us, I encouraged us to pray for one another, to faithfully, methodically, specifically pray for one another. I've been so encouraged by the feedback that I've gotten already of people who are uh, motivated to do that. That's great. Let's keep that up. For those of you who have been doing that, though, I wonder if you've found that sometimes you're praying you know, through, the, through the database of the church family, and you just, you're just stumped. You just don't know what to pray. Right? It's like, okay, uh, here's this person. I love this person, but what? What am I going to say? Yeah, and you end up praying like just these generic prayers of blessing. God, please bless these people. And you don't know what else to pray. Well, that's fine. Keep doing that. That's good. But our passage this morning can help us with that problem of not knowing what to pray because Paul tells us in this passage specifically what he prays for the Philippians. Right? It's like, it's like we get a lesson in the school of prayer from the Apostle Paul right here. There's about six places in Paul's letters where he tells specifically what he's praying. He says, I'm praying this for you. And those passages are so precious because knowing what Paul focused on in his prayers can teach us what we should focus on in our own lives and in our own prayers as we pray for others. So essentially, in this text, the one thing that Paul is asking God for is that the Philippians would grow in love. Did you catch that? That's a basic request. Lord, may their love abound more and more. Bigger love, growing in love, abounding in love. That's it. That's the one thing. But then he goes on to qualify how their love should be abounding. He says that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. And then he explains why he's praying for their love to abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. So that's the prayer. The prayer is that their love will abound, that it will abound with knowledge and discernment that their love will abound with knowledge and discernment so that they might be able to approve that which is excellent. And then he closes that prayer by explaining that if that happens, three things will result. They'll be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. They'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. And they'll be glorifying and praising God with their lives. 
It's amazing how much content Paul has packed into that one sentence prayer. And so the plan for the remainder of our time is to think briefly about each of the parts of that prayer and see how they fit together as a whole. And the idea in taking the time to understand this prayer, this masterpiece of a prayer, is uh, that we might experience these things in our own lives. So first, he's praying that they will abound in love. We should ask the rather obvious question, what is love? Um, that, that, that feels obvious. It's a good question to ask on Mother's Day, right? Mothers are great at loving. Well, what is love? When you actually try to answer that, some words are like that where it feels like, well, I use that word all the time. I know exactly what it means. And then you try to actually give it a definition. It's harder than you think. What is love? My grandma died last year, and uh, she was 105, and um, she never did quite adjust to the 21st century. I remember one time we were in her living room trying to, uh, I don't remember what the question was, but we were trying to figure something out. My grandma said, uh, why don't you ask that lady in your phone? <laughs> she, she didn't know what was happening when my phone would talk back to me. So I always think of her when I ask my phone something. And uh, I took her advice, and I asked that lady in my phone what love is. This is the answer I got. That's what my phone told me. As I understand it, love refers to a deep... T- my phone said that, as I understand it. Love refers to a deep, tender, ineffable feeling of affection and solicitude. I don't find that helpful, do you? I don't even know what ineffable and solicitude mean. So that didn't help. The next idea was, well, uh, I'm a pastor. I read the Bible. I went to seminary. The Bible was written in Greek. I should figure out what the Greek word is and look that up in my Greek dictionary. Okay, the Greek word there is agape. It's kind of a famous... Greek word, agape, means love. I looked it up in my Greek dictionary. Here's what it said. Agape, the quality of warm regard for and interest in one another. That's not much better than my phone. Uh, Maybe, this is Mother's Day, maybe I can give husbands some advice. If you take your wife out on a date, you lean over, you look into her eyes, you say, I have a warm regard for and interest in you. That's not going to cut it. That is not going to cut it. That does does not capture the passion and the complexity and the affection and the self-giving and the joy that are all inherent in that feeling, in that word, love. Right? we got to do better than that. So let's turn to the Bible itself. My phone didn't help us. My Greek dictionary didn't help us. How about the Bible itself? That'll help us. In a different letter, Paul wrote all about love. Right? You remember that letter? It gets read at marriages all the time, at weddings. He gave a detailed expression in the Bible of what love is. We'll take our definition from there. Do you remember? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Paul is praying that the Philippians would abound in that, in that selfless, self-giving affection and patience and kindness towards others. True love is selfless. True love is not... 
True love focuses on the object, right? It's directed at something. And it's focused on that. And if you're focused on the thing you're loving, what you're not focused on is yourself. True love is others-focused. A person who is patient and kind, that doesn't envy, doesn't boast, isn't arrogant, isn't rude, doesn't insist on his own way, that is a person who is not thinking much at all about himself or herself. Not, not thinking about his rights, not thinking about what's coming to him. That person is focused on the well-being and the joy of others. Now what I've observed in myself, and sometimes in others, is that most of us are a little bit of hesitant to express that kind of deep, true, selfless love towards others, right? Because that makes you vulnerable, right? If I'm not looking out for myself, if I'm not thinking about myself, well then who is, right? You, you put yourself in a vulnerable position. And so we hold back a little bit, right? We're not always patient and kind because, well, if someone has offended us or slighted us or annoyed us, well, we feel the need to let them know. Instead of laying down our lives in selfless love for others, we tend to advocate for ourselves and for our rights and for our needs and for our preferences. If we don't, who will? But the one who loves others truly and biblically loses sight of himself or herself because they're focused on the object of their affection. But in the doing of that, in the losing sight of ourselves and looking away from ourselves and at others, we end up finding ourselves more truly, right? It's one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life, right? The Christian life is built on these great paradoxes, right? Jesus said, we die in order to live. That's a paradox. You want to really be alive? Well, guess what? You've got to die. And we lose ourselves in order to find our true selves. You want to really find yourself, who you are, who God made you and redeemed and called you to be. You want to find that person? Well, you've got to lose yourself in the process to find that person. If you're staring at yourself all the time, you'll never find yourself. It's a paradox. It's not a punishment, right? It's a source of blessing and joy. It's one of the ways, you know, this, these last two weeks, we, in different ways, we've talked about that God, God has begun to work in us, and when God starts something, He finishes it. He will bring to completion the good work that He began in us. But one of the ways He's bringing that good work to completion is by empowering us to abound in our love towards God and in our love towards one another. As we do that, God is chipping away the ugly the selfish, the sin-distorted selves. And he's making us more and more like our true selves, the selves that were created in the image of God. He's making us more beautiful as we do that. Okay, so we're praying. Paul prayed for the Philippians, and we're praying for one another that we will abound more and more in love, in wholehearted devotion to God, in self-giving affection and kindness towards others. Now, 
the important qualifier comes in. He prays that your love may abound more and more with, the the preposition there, with, it means in union with or in conjunction with, at the same time as, together with, so that you may abound more and more in love, together with knowledge and discernment. Okay, maybe you could picture it like train tracks, one track being love, the other one being knowledge and discernment. Paul is saying, look, keep those tracks together. Keep those tracks parallel. Don't head off in one direction without the other. Keep your love and your knowledge tethered together. Because if one gets out ahead of the other, you will get unbalanced and unhealthy. So Paul, he, Paul's not praying for like a, like a soft, generic, unthinking kind of love. He's not saying like, all you need is love. Not, not that kind of like sentimentality. In fact, that kind of sentimentality has very little to do with love at all, right? You've, you've probably heard people who weaponize the command to love our neighbors, right? As if that means, well, in order to love your neighbor, you need to love everything that your neighbor does. And if you don't love everything that your neighbor's doing, then you're not really loving your neighbor. True love, true love always needs to be tethered to knowledge, wisdom, discernment, truth. Right? They go together. Paul's prayer is that we will abound in love more and more with knowledge and discernment. Love, knowledge, and discernment abounding together. What happens if you have just knowledge without love? Well, that's bad. Knowledge without love is bad. Paul explains that explicitly in 1 Corinthians 12, right? when, he, when he's talking all about love in that part of that letter. He says, if I have prophetic powers, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, then I'm nothing. Knowledge without love is bad. It will make you a self-exalting bore. It will make you self-righteous. It will make you a Pharisee. It will make you a tyrant or worse. Think of people you've known that have Knowledge without love. Think of people you've known who can quote all the Bible verses all the time, but who use that Bible knowledge as a way to puff themselves up, as a way to win arguments, but they don't seem to have any love in their hearts for the people that they're talking to. Knowledge without love is an ugly thing. But love without knowledge is also misguided. The Bible says, we just read it, love love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but love rejoices with the truth. Love doesn't rejoice in everything all the time. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. What love rejoices in is the truth. And it takes knowledge and discernment to love rightly. It's not easy. You can't love the one true God unless you have some knowledge of who He is. Love and knowledge go together. Loving one person doesn't doesn't mean just blindly and unthinkingly saying yes to them all the time. That's not love. Sometimes love confronts. Love challenges. Love says and does hard things sometimes. Love causes pain sometimes. And when it does those things, it's not motivated by self-interest. It is motivated by a desire for what's best for the other person. Well, sometimes it's hard to know what's best for the other person. 
it's not always easy to know what love should look like in a given situation, right? I mean, moms, this is Mother's Day. You, of all people, know that, right? You know you love your kids, but you just don't always know what form love should take in any given situation. It's hard to know. It's hard to know how to express love. It takes a whole lot of wisdom and a whole lot of discernment to live a life of love. And that's why Paul prays that the Philippians will abound in love, right? Learning, learning to be self-giving and affectionate to one another. But that their love will always abound with, in union with, together with, knowledge and discernment. And what will be the result of that? Paul says that the result is that they're able to approve what is excellent. When we're filled with wise and discerning love towards God, love towards one another, then we begin to see things clearly. And we're able then to live wisely, approving what is excellent, turning from that which is not excellent. The phrase, the phrase there, approve what is excellent, it, it's literally, that would be translated, discern between things that differ. Right? You can, you can discern between things that are maybe similar but are different. Right? So he's not really talking about choosing between good and evil. Right? That he, he's talking about choosing between mediocre and excellent. Being able to discern between things that are similar but different. Between things that are okay but not best and excellent. Right? When I thought about that as... The, the metaphor I came up with was pic, picture a cattle farmer who goes to the auction and he's looking over the herd to see which ones he wants to buy, right? Now, he's not trying to discern between cows and chickens, right? Even I can do that. That's not hard. He's looking at a whole bunch of cows, right? They're, they're similar but different, right? They're not all the same. They're all cows, but they're not all the same. And he's trying to assess them and figure out which ones are excellent, which ones are not. To my untrained eye, they all look the same. They're all cows, right? Just, just pick one. I have, I have no hope of discerning uh, what is best and approving what is excellent. Not when it comes to cows. I proved that. We raised some cows a couple years ago. And when, when the guy came to our property, I thought they were awesome. Right? They were big. They made cow noises. They escaped all the time. They must be good cows. The guy that came to, uh, to butcher them, he got to our place and he looked at him. He's like, whoa, they're, they're kind of small. Are you sure they're ready? I was like, what? Those are the best cows ever. Are you kidding me? So I, 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 I'm not, I, they're just cows to me. I, I don't have the eyes to discern. I didn't intend to tell that story. Now I've got to find out where I, where I was. Um, okay, but, all right, so that's me. You, here's, here's another way that you might be able to discern. You could bring a bookish-type person who's never seen a live cow in their life, but they've read all the books about the cows. Well, they'll do better than me, right, because they'll know something, but they haven't logged any hours with cows. They haven't built up any cow hours, right? So they have knowledge, but they don't really have love, right? They don't have cow love. They just have cow knowledge. They're going to miss some key things that you can't get from books, I'm sure, right? 
If you want to approve what is excellent in a cow, you would do well to bring a third generation farmer who not only understands cows with like a head knowledge of cows, but who also loves cows, right? Respects cows, thinks about cows, right? This is a, this is a I don't know why, right now I'm picturing Tim Hofstra. He's a cow guy, that man knows cows, right? He's in the head of a cow when he's looking at a cow, right? He's gonna discern what's best. He's gonna approve what's excellent. I will put my money on that person every time to figure out which cow is best. Okay, all right, enough. The daily reality for you and I is that every day there are loads of options in front of us, and it takes true love united with real wisdom in order to discern what's best. Right? You could do a million different things with your finances, right? You do what you want some of which are obviously wrong, some of which are okay, but kind of mediocre, and some of which are excellent ways to use your money. So how are you going to figure out, between all the options you have, what to do? Well, if your heart is abounding with love for God and with love for others, and if that love is being guided by all knowledge and discernment, you'll know. You'll know. You'll be like the wise farmer looking at the cattle. You'll know what's best. You'll know what's best when it comes to your use of finances. You'll know what's best when it comes to your use of time. Right? No more more wallowing in guilty mediocrity, wasting precious hours doing things that might not be overtly sinful, but certainly aren't excellent. When it's time to relax, you'll know. You will relax with excellence. You will relax with passion to the glory of God. When it's time to eat, you will eat with excellence. You will eat joyfully to the glory of God with your whole heart. And when it's time to serve others, you will serve joyfully. You will lay down your life in patient and kind service to others. Not boasting, not insisting on your own way. You will serve with excellence. Right? If we learn by God's grace, to live in the goodness of this prayer that Paul's praying. We will no longer be bringing home the mediocre cows from the auction of life. Okay? I promise I'm done with that metaphor now. Okay? Our lives will be marked by a spirit-empowered excellence. I want that for me. I want that for us. Paul wanted that for the church at Philippi. Lives marked by spirit-empowered excellence. Not settling for anything less than all the goodness and blessing that God has for us. Giving of our finances with excellence. Giving of our time with excellence. Studying God's word with excellence. Serving one another with excellence. Worshiping God with excellence. Discerning between what's best and pursuing it. If I could paraphrase Paul's prayer, it would go like this. I'm praying that your love will abound, always united with knowledge, so that you will never do anything half-hearted again. Right? If you're going to do something, give yourself to it. Make sure that you are motivated being abounding, abounding with love. And make sure that love is combined with all knowledge and discernment. And then give yourself to whatever it is that you're going to do. Don't live a compromised, half-hearted Christian life, but discern God's excellent will 
and go after it and live passionately for that. Let's start praying that for one another. That's what Paul prayed for the church at Philippi. Hey, Paul said, if you do that, if you live that way, three things will happen. We'll just run through them really quickly. Three things will happen. You'll be pure and blameless for the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And you'll be glorifying and praising God with your life. Pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Uh, You don't need to stumble over that phrase as if Paul's advocating some kind of sinless perfection here in this life. It's a process. We know it's a process. It's a process by which God is changing us and shaping us, right? Like the metaphor from last week. God's a sculptor. He's chipping away the parts that don't belong there in order to liberate the true people that he's created and called and redeemed us to be. And we'll be filled then with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, right? This is a process, and he's not just changing us on the inside, although he is, but that inside change is transforming and manifesting itself on the outside. External works of righteousness, fruit. Our lives will bear good fruit when we get this right. And then our church will be a beautiful orchard, and each tree will be bearing its own unique and beautiful fruit. And finally, lest we feel too puffed up, we close by being reminded of the simple yet profound fact that all this good work is being done in us to the glory and to the praise of God. Right? There's a greater purpose here than you and I abounding in love and living excellent lives, good as that is. But it always seems to come back to the glory of God. That's a good thing. Ultimately, life, the universe, and everything is not about us. It is about God. God does not orbit around us. We orbit around God. So let's just put it all together one last time. The prayer is that our love will abound more and more. That our love will always be united with knowledge and discernment so that we can pursue that which is excellent. And as we live that life of in love and discernment, pursuing excellence... We are being changed and shaped over time into people who are pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And our lives will be bearing fruit for the glory of God. Let's pray that for one another, just as Paul prayed it for the Philippians. And let's live that out together. I invite you to pray with me right now. Lord, I do pray that our love, that our love would abound more and more. This is a loving place. Lord, it is a loving place, and that's beautiful. I just pray that our love would abound more and more. And as that love abounds, that it would be tethered to knowledge and discernment. That we would have wise love. That we would have love that is truthful. I pray that our love would abound with knowledge and discernment. so that we can discern what is excellent, so that we can know what is best, and so that we can go after that and pursue it with all of our life. We don't want to live mediocre lives or half-hearted lives or compromised lives. I pray that you would help us to see what is excellent and to go after it with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and strength. I pray that we would be marked by that. And that you would be shaping us as we pursue that. 
making us pure and blameless, enabling us to bear the fruit of righteousness so that you, God, will be glorified in our midst, so that when people visit and see us, they wouldn't see us, but they, our lives would be arrows pointing to you and that you would be glorified in our midst. Paul prayed that for the Philippians, and we're asking that you would do that same thing in us. In Christ's name, amen.